Did Shakespeare believe in ghosts? Well, of course, we have no evidence as to what Shakespeare personally believed. What we can say is that he knew that a ghost was a very effective dramatic device. So too with devils and spirits. In the early 1590s, as he was carving out his career as a player and, and playwright, two of the most celebrated plays on the, in the London theatrical repertoire were Thomas Kidd's The Spanish Tragedy, which is presided over by the ghost of Don Andrea and the personification of revenge, and Christopher Marlowe's Dr Faustus, conjurer of the devilish spirit Mephistopheles. In each case, the supernatural is the driver of the action, the demand for revenge in one case, the quest for illicit knowledge in the other. Although the Spanish tragedy is set in modern times, as Portugal secedes from Spain, the chorus, consisting of ghost and revenge, have come from the classical world. Don Andrea's long opening speech tells of his journey along the flowing stream of Acheron, transported by churlish Charon, only boatman there, and his arrival upon Avernus' ugly waves. Avernus was the lake at the entrance to the classical underworld. He then recalls his encounter with the three judges of the dead and of his descent to Pluto's court through dreadful shades of ever-glooming night. And there he sees two divergent paths, one of which descends to Tartarus, the deepest hell where bloody furies shake their whips of steel and poor Ixion turns in endless wheel, and the other of which leads more invitingly to the meadows where lovers live and bloody martialists. That's the destination that Virgil in the Aeneid called the morning fields and the furthest plains that are the destination of those such as Dido who have died for love and the heroes such as the Trojan warriors who have died in battle. But Don Andrea is stopped by Pluto, god of the underworld, because he doesn't have the correct passport. <laughs> and at that point he's introduced to revenge and sent back to earth to witness the man who killed him being killed himself. Kidd's Spanish tragedy was the keystone of Elizabethan revenge tragedy, but the foundations were laid by Seneca. Remember Polonius and Hamlet, Seneca cannot be too heavy for the players of tragedy at Elsinore. The very idea of commencing a play with a chorus is learned from the classical tradition. And linguistically, the long opening speech by the ghost of Don Andrea is modelled on Seneca's Agamemnon, which begins with the ghost of Thyestes. Here's the Elizabethan translation of it. Departing from the darkened dens which Dickis low doth keep, lo, here I am sent out again from Tartar dungeon deep. Thyestes I, that whether coast to shun do stand in doubt, the internal fiends I fly, so the infernal fiends I fly, the folks of earth I chase about. Seneca's trademark is indeed the supernatural intervention that winds the plot of revenge tragedy. Thus, his Thyestes begins, as the argument of the Elizabethan translation puts it, with Megaira, one of the hellish furies, raising up Tantalus from hell and inciting him to set mortal hatred between his two nephews, Thyestes and Atreus. A fury and a ghost, as joint chorus, served as another model for Kidd. The original edition of the Thyestes translation 
had a verse preface describing a dream in which the ghost of Seneca appears to the translator, who was an Oxford don called Jasper Hayward. Seneca is wearing a scarlet gown to indicate that his genre is tragedy, and a laurel garland in honour of his poetic greatness. And he carries a book and says that he has come back from the dead to seek someone that might renew my name and make me speak in stranger speech and set my work to sight and scan my verse in other tongue than I was wont to write. The idea of an author from Imperial Rome returning to pass the baton to an English successor was an essential part of the Elizabethan cultural project of dignifying the nation with a literary canon of its own. These Senecan and Neo-Senecan contexts raise a number of interesting questions that we can apply to Shakespeare. Clearly, neither Kidd nor Shakespeare believed that revenge was a real person. They trust their audience to understand that the idea, the spirit of revenge, is being embodied in a fictional persona for dramatic purposes. Early in his career, Shakespeare doubles down on Kidd by making the figure of revenge in Titus Andronicus not a discreet character from the underworld, but a role impersonated by the villainess Tamora. And uh, here she is in a, in, in, a, in a production with her two sons dressed as rape and murder. I am revenge sent from the infernal kingdom to ease the gnawing vulture of thy mind by working wreakful vengeance, vengeance on thy foes, says Tamora. Titus deliciously sees through the disguise and turns the vengeance back on Tamora in the most wreakful way by dishing up those sons in a pie, self-consciously replicating Procne's revenge on Terius in the Philomel story in Ovid's Metamorphoses that is actually explicitly displayed on the stage. Shakespeare deploys the word revenge more than 200 times in his works, but instead of bringing the figure on stage as a chorus, as Kidd did, he allows his characters to internalise the idea as a moral problem and an imperative for action. Revenge is an impulse that, as Aaron puts it in Titus Andronicus, hammers in the head. Notice how in those lines of Tamora I quoted, she speaks of the gnawing vulture of Titus's mind. The classical myth of Prometheus's punishment tied to a mountainside with a vulture gnawing at his liver is turned into a mental state. This is a typically Shakespearean move. Whereas Kid's Don Andrea comes from classical Tartarus, where Ixion turns an endless wheel, Shakespeare's Lear internalises the fate of Ixion. I am bound upon a wheel of fire that mine own tears do, mold like, do scald like molten lead. The transposition of furies and ghosts from external forces to internal mental states is a significant clue to Shakespeare's representation of the paranormal. When revenge is externalised by Shakespeare, it's in the form of a human comparison, such as Pyrrhus in Hamlet, who I talked about a couple of lectures ago. Whereas self-consciously Senecan tragedians, such as Kidd and Peel, were content to bring on Arte, the classical spirit of havoc, as a prologue or in a mask between the acts, Shakespeare confines Arte to the rhetorical and metaphoric fabric of his plays, 
For example, when Queen Eleanor in King John is described as an arte stirring the king to blood and strife. Or when Mark Antony speaks of Caesar's spirit ranging for revenge with arte by his side come hot from hell. Arte does not appear on the Shakespearean stage, but Caesar's spirit does. The ghost in Julius Caesar is not a Senecan prologue, but a nocturnal apparition as the action builds towards its climax. Brutus is reading by the light of a flickering taper when the ghost of Caesar enters. Brutus initially thinks that it is the weakness of mine eyes that shapes this monstrous apparition. Then he asks, very much as Hamlet will when he interrogates the ghost of his father, art thou anything? Art thou some god, some angel, or some devil that makest my blood cold and my hair to stare? Speak to me what thou art. The ghost replies that he is Brutus's evil spirit and that he has come to tell him that they will meet at Philippi. We do not witness this second meeting, but Brutus reports it after the event and acknowledges that the two visitations are a sign that his hour is come. In other words, that he is about to die. That phrase is strikingly reminiscent of the language of Jesus talking about his coming crucifixion. And in this regard, it is interesting to note how the words of Roman Brutus are inflected by the Christian idea of a seeming ghost really being an angel or a devil. In an influential treatise called Of Ghosts and Spirits Walking by Night and of Strange Noises, Cracks and Sundry Forewarnings, which commonly happen before the death of men, great slaughters and alterations of kingdoms, catchy little title, in <laughs> English translation 1572, the theologian Louis Lavatta asked, what are those things which men see and hear and which they call ghosts? He concluded that sometimes they are good angels and sometimes, more often, they are evil angels. There are two things to notice about the ghost scene in Julius Caesar. First, that two fellow soldiers, Varus and Claudius, sleep through the entire incident and that Brutus's subsequent dialogue with his servant Lucius makes it absolutely clear that the boy has not seen or heard anything either. This strongly suggests that the ghost is a figment of Brutus's imagination. Secondly, although Brutus says that it is the ghost of Caesar, as does the stage direction, and although at the moment that Brutus kills himself, he says he is releasing the ghost that has remained restless until revenged, Caesar now be still, he says, as he stabs himself, the ghost does not identify himself as Caesar, but as Brutus's evil spirit. He is perhaps like the bad angel of Christopher Marlowe's Dr Faustus, or indeed like Prospero in The Tempest, acknowledging that Caliban is a thing of darkness that is his own. He is a figuration of Brutus's conscience for the killing of his best friend. That idea is derived directly from Shakespeare's source, which was Plutarch's Life of Julius Caesar, where Shakespeare read the following. Brutus, in his tent, and yet awake, thinking of his affairs, he thought he heard a noise at the tent door, and looking towards the light of the lamp that waxed very dim, he saw a horrible vision of a man of a wonderful greatness and dreadful look, which at the first made him marvellously afraid. But when he saw that it did him no hurt, but stood by his bedside and said nothing, at length he asked him what he was. The image answered him, 
I am thy ill angel, Brutus, and thou shalt see me by the city of Philippi. According to Plutarch, when that spirit appeared a second time at Philippi, it did not speak a word, reason enough for Shakespeare to report rather than dramatise the second visitation. But when scripting the play, Shakespeare also read Plutarch's Life of Brutus, and there the account is much fuller. Plutarch tells of how, as the army marched out of Asia into Europe, a rumour spread that a wonderful sign had appeared to Brutus at night. And there is a vivid account of his sleeplessness, the result of him being a man full of cares, with his head busily occupied. He is evoked slumbering, reading his book, and then... Very late, when all the camp took quiet rest, as he was in his tent with a little light, thinking of weighty matters, he thought he heard someone come to him. And casting his eye towards the door of his tent, he saw a wonderful, strange and monstrous shape of a body coming towards him. So Brutus boldly asked what he was, a god or a man, and what cause brought him thither? The spirit answered him, I am thy evil spirit, Brutus, and thou shalt see me by the city of Philippi. Brutus, being no otherwise afraid, replied again unto it, Well, then I shall see thee again. And the spirit vanished. And Brutus called his men, who told him they heard no noise, nor saw anything. So again, there is no suggestion that it is the ghost of Caesar. But this account has an interesting aftermath. In the morning, Brutus tells Cassius about the vision. Now Cassius, Plutarch tells us, is in opinion an Epicurean. And Shakespeare picks up that detail, say, has Cassius saying that he held Epicurus strong in his opinion. Epicurus, one of the classical philosophers, this is what Cassius says about being an Epicurean. In our sect, that's to say the Epicureans, Brutus, we have an opinion that we do not always feel or see that which we suppose we do both feel and see, but that our senses being credulous and therefore easily abused are induced to imagine they see and conjecture that which in truth they do not. For our mind is quick and cunning to work, and therefore the imagination is resembled to clay and the mind to the potter, who without any other cause than his fancy and pleasure changeth it into whatever fashion and form he will. Now I think that the cognitive scepticism articulated here struck a deep chord with Shakespeare. Think about it. There are all sorts of moments in Shakespeare's plays where characters do not feel or see that which they suppose they see and feel. Claudio, in Much Ado About Nothing, supposes he sees his beloved hero with another man in her bedroom on the eve of their wedding, but he is being tricked. It is really her maid. Leontes, in The Winter's Tale, feels like a cuckold and thinks that the girl baby he sees has been fathered by Polixenes, but he is wrong. Macbeth thinks that he sees a dagger in the air, but it is an illusion. The examples could be multiplied a hundredfold. They are the consequence of the power of imagination. For, as Plutarch's Cassius says, the human mind is quick and cunning to work all manner of things in the imagination. Julius Caesar was first performed in 1599 in close proximity to Henry V. One or other of those plays was the opening play uh, when the Globe Theatre was built in the summer of 1599. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Cassius's argument here about the work of imagination is echoed in the prologue to Henry V. Let us, remember the prologue says, upon your imaginary forces work. 
In that same prologue, the actors are referred to as flat, unraised spirits. That is to say, the players are like ghosts, shadows or spirits of the historical figures they are impersonating. For Shakespeare, a play is like a dream. Cassius continues his disquisition in Plutarch on the power of imagination as follows. And this doth the diversity of our dreams show us. For our imagination doth upon a small fancy grow from conceit to conceit, altering both in passions and forms of things imagined. For the mind of man is ever occupied, and that continual moving is nothing but an imagination. As with the preceding image of the mind as a potter fashioning and forming with the clay of imagination, the language in which Cassius describes the creativity of dream work is closely akin to that in which Theseus describes the poet's art in A Midsummer Night's Dream. And as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing and a local habitation and a name. The Epicureans did not believe that divine or supernatural forces intervene in the life of man. Cassius is therefore arguing that the ghostly apparition is a mere effect of Brutus's fevered imagination. It is exactly like a dream. He adds that according to the Epicureans, thoughtful, melancholy men such as Brutus are unusually prone to fancies. Their mental restlessness means that they do easily yield to such imaginations. Remember in this regard, that Shakespeare was working on Hamlet in very close proximity to Julius Caesar. Hamlet, his most thoughtful and melancholy character, is also especially prone both to vivid dreams and to the belief, is it an illusion, a delusion or a reality, that he has been visited by a ghost. Dreams are visions of the night, as are ghosts, which you never see in the daytime. Remember how the ghost of old Hamlet vanishes as dawn breaks. So according to this reading, the ghost of Caesar has the same status as Macbeth's visions of a dagger in the air and of the ghost of Banquo at the feast. It is the effect of a fevered and guilty imagination. Lady Macbeth, you will recall, specifically links the invisible dagger to the apparition of Banquo that is seen by Macbeth and no one else. This is the very painting of your fear. This is the air-drawn dagger which you said led you to Duncan. Oh, these flaws and starts, impostors to true fear, would well become a woman's story at a winter's fire authorised by her grandam. Shame itself. Why do you make such faces? When all's done, you look but on a stool. Some modern productions make the point by entirely confining Banquo's ghost to Macbeth's imagination. It's two productions just opened, haven't they? One at the National and one at the Royal Shakespeare Company. It'd be interesting to see whether either or both of them make that choice, which the old BBC television version of the 1980s did. Uh, there's the shot where Macbeth is literally looking at an empty chair. It's clear, though, from the original folio text uh, that Shakespeare did intend the ghost of Banquo to be seen by the theatre audience as well as Macbeth, just not to be seen by the other characters on stage. So here the audience is allowed to see through Macbeth's eyes. It is given access, as we are in a soliloquy, to the interior of his mind. 
Several other ghosts and spirits in Shakespeare come into this category of apparitions during sleep, which is to say dreams. Towards the end of Cymbeline, Posthumus, captured in battle, goes to sleep in jail, at which point to solemn music there is the following stage direction. And uh, the slide you can see on the left is from the great Japanese director Ninagawa's uh, production of Cymbeline. Enter as in an apparition, Sicilius Leonatus, father to Posthumus, an old man, attired like a warrior, leading in his hand an ancient matron, his wife and mother to Posthumus, with music before them. Then, after other music, follow the two young Leonati, brothers to Posthumus, with wounds as they died in the war. They circle Posthumus round as he lies sleeping. Posthumus, whose name is a constant reminder that his mother died in childbirth, like Macduff, he was ripped by Caesarean section, which in Shakespeare's day meant death to the mother. Posthumus is granted a dream in which his dead family are restored to him. They accuse the classical gods, Mars, Juno and Jupiter, of unfair treatment. And this provokes Jupiter to descend, you can see him there in the Ninagawa, and uh, to release them into Elysium with the prophecy that Posthumus will be restored to freedom and will marry Imogen, bringing peace and good fortune to Britain. Poor shadows of Elysium hence, says Jupiter, and rest upon your never-withering banks of flowers, sending them off to those Elysian fields. God and ghost vanish and Posthumus awakes. There is a similar sense of divine release for the deposed and condemned Queen Catherine in Henry VIII, one of Shakespeare's very last plays. I put up a rather beautiful illustration to it by William Blake. There, again, to sad and solemn music, a vision of six spirits of peace descend upon the Queen as she sleeps. As with Brutus and his boy Lucius, Queen Catherine asks her gentleman Usher and her woman if they saw anybody enter as she slept, and she is told they did not. The Usher then describes the spirits as good dreams that possess the Queen's fancy, figments of the imagination, that is to say. Another eve of battle vision is the celebrated scene on the night before Bosworth Field in Richard III. I'll put two images up for you, for you here. A famous painting um, of Garrick as Richard III by, by Hogarth um, and Blake's vision um, where you can, you can see the ghosts, including the little princes in the tower at the bottom. So do you remember this scene? Richard is sleeping in his tent on one side of the stage and Richmond, his enemy, the future Henry VII, on the other. The ghosts of 11 of Richard's victims enter in quick succession, all of them cursing Richard and some blessing Richmond. After they vanish, there's a stage direction, Richard starts out of his dream and then he delivers a soliloquy in which his previously wholly assured sense of self begins to collapse. Richard loves Richard, that is, I am I. Is there a murderer here? No. Yes, I am. What? Do I fear myself? There's none else by. The fear comes from within. The dream of ghosts has pricked his conscience and alerted him to the vengeance that will fall upon him. Methought, he says, methought the souls of all that I had murdered came to my tent. He believes that the ghosts are but his own thoughts. They are what Freud would have called the voice of the unconscious or the return of the repressed. 
By having the ghosts also appear to the sleeping Richmond, the apparitions serve simultaneously as agents of conscience and of nemesis for Richard and as guardian angels for Richmond. So, in classical literature, ghosts have two or perhaps three main functions. To call for vengeance and, relatedly, to serve as auguries or omens of hard times ahead. And those are two sort of interrelated functions. And then thirdly, to demand proper burial when they have not been buried. The foundational example of that one is a very famous scene towards the end of Homer's Iliad where Achilles' beloved friend Patroclus appears to him and uh, says that uh, because he's not been buried, Achilles must go into action and carry out revenge. Shakespeare tends not to use that return of the ghost who hasn't been buried trope. He develops the figure of the ghost in a way that combines what we might describe as the classical nemesis function and the augury function, the ghost as a sign of the downfall of the murderer and of the coming of conflict. He combines that with what we might call a more modern conscience function, the idea that the apparition is a figure of the guilty imagination. Now, in the case of Macbeth, those two functions are clearly split apart. The, the nemesis idea is given to the weird sisters, the witches. They are seen by both Macbeth and Banquo, and they act rather like classical sibyls, predictors of the future. Their prognostications, along with the unnatural events on the night of the murder of Duncan, you remember this bad weather of falcons killed by an owl, Duncan's horses run mad, these are of a piece with the bad omens that foreshadow Caesar's assassination, which are referred to in Julius Caesar, a slave with a flaming hand but unharmed, an owl hooting at noon, women swearing they've seen men in, all in fire walking up and down the streets. But in Macbeth, the ghost is something different. The ghost is clearly a figment of conscience, analogous to what Macbeth calls, apropos of his dagger, a false creation proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain. That idea of a ghost as merely a mental figment may also be said of Shakespeare's very beautiful reported as opposed to staged ghost scene. In The Winter's Tale, Antigonus is commissioned to dispose of the baby that the delusional Leontes has convinced himself is the illegitimate offspring of an adulterous union between Hermione and Polixenes. Arriving on the fabled coast of Bohemia, holding the baby, Antigonus speaks a long soliloquy. Um, as you see, it's, it's long. I'm not going to read it all, but it's, uh, um, it's very beautifully done. I have heard, he said, but not believed, the spirits of the dead may walk again. If such thing be, thy mother, he says to the baby, appeared to me last night, for ne'er was dream so like a waking. And then he tells of how the figure of Hermione came to him in pure white robes like very sanctity, how she wept and then told him to leave the child in Bohemia and since she is counted lost forever to name her Perdita. With shrieks, he says, the figure melted into air, 
the same phrase that Macbeth had used for the witches. And Antigonus then tells of how he collected himself and thought that this was so and no slumber. He concludes, dreams are toys, yet for once, yea, superstitiously, I will be squared by this. I do believe Hermione hath suffered death, and that Apollo would, this being indeed the issue of King Polixenes, it should here be laid, either for life or death, upon the earth of its right father. So he believes that the dream ghost is telling him the truth. But all three of his conclusions are wrong. Hermione has not suffered death. The child is not Polixenes' issue. And Apollo's will is for the lost one to be found and restored to Sicilia. At this point, however, the audience does not know that Hermione is alive. We are therefore, at least partially, in the position of Antigonus. And we have the option of deciding whether the dream really was a visitation from beyond the grave, or whether it is a manifestation of Antigonus's guilty conscience at being party to the abandonment of the child in the wilderness, expressly against the better judgment of his wife Paulina. Only in retrospect, when we discover that Paulina has preserved Hermione, can we be sure that it was pure dream. Antigonus cannot have been witness, cannot have witnessed an apparition of the spirit of the dead, since Hermione is not dead. In this instance, the theatre audience is again put in the position of Macbeth at the banquet, the position of the drowsy Brutus and the sleeping Posthumus, the position of Richard and Richmond in Richard III. The ghosts seem real at the time, but are subsequently discovered to be mental phantasms, which, rationally speaking, is the experience of anybody who dreams or imagines that they have seen a ghost. How then do these distinctions apply to Shakespeare's most loquacious and celebrated ghost? The role that, according to his first biographer, was the top of his own performance as an actor. In the opening scene of Hamlet, the ghost is initially described as a thing. Horatio, the honest companion who is the voice of sanity and the chorus of the action, initially takes that Epicurean view that it is a figment of the imagination. Horatio says, "'Tis but our fantasy, and will not let belief take hold of him, touching this dreaded sight twice seen of us." But when he sees it with his own eyes, Horatio is forced to acknowledge that it is something more than fantasy. He then reads it as an omen, akin to those aberrations of nature on the brink of Caesar's assassination. This bodes some strange eruption to our state, he says. And then he explicates the Roman parallel at considerable length. In the most high and palmy state of Rome, a little ere the mighty Julius fell, the graves stood tenantless and the sheeted dead did squeak and gibber in the Roman streets, as stars with trains of fire and dews of blood, disasters in the sun, with eclipses, and even like precursor fierce events, as harbingers preceding still the fates and prologue to the omen, omen coming on, have heaven and earth together demonstrated unto our climature and countrymen. So that's the idea of a ghost as, a, as an omen, a harbinger of terrible actions. Now at that point, the ghost re-enters, and Horatio calls it an illusion, and he asks it whether it has come to predict Denmark's future, or 
using a bit of folklore, whether it's come to reveal the whereabouts of some hidden treasure for which they say yon spirits oft walk in death. He charges it to speak, but it vanishes with the crowing of the cock, confirming the belief that at the first light of dawn, the extravagant and erring spirit hies to his confine. We will come in a moment to the nature of that confine. When Horatio goes to tell Hamlet about the ghost, he initially gets the impression that Hamlet has seen his late father already. But what Hamlet means is that he has seen him in his mind's eye, which is to say his imagination, the place where Macbeth sees Banquo's ghost and Richard those of his victims. Hamlet is haunted by the memory of his father, not least because we may assume that he never had a chance to say goodbye to him. Though the point is not made explicitly, the backstory clearly suggests that Hamlet was away at university in Wittenberg when his father died. So the news would not have reached him till after the burial. Helsingor to Wittenberg is a journey of over 500 kilometres each way, including a ferry crossing. Hamlet returns in mourning black to find himself at a wedding instead of a funeral. In the circumstances, it is hardly surprising that he is dreaming nightly and imagining daily of his father in his mind's eye. At the end of the scene, Hamlet is in a state of uncertainty. In one speech, he says that something is assuming his father's shape, and in the next, he assumes that his father's spirit is really up in arms. And there is a similar progression in the first speech that he addresses to the ghost once he's up on the battlements. It begins with the assumption that the figure is either a spirit of health or goblin damned, bringing airs from heaven or blasts from hell. That is to say, either it's a good angel, like the spirits who descend on Queen Catherine in Henry VIII, or a, a devil like Marlowe's Mephistopheles, tempting him to evil. But because of the uncertainty as to its nature, thou comest in such a questionable shape, he says, he decides to make the assumption that it genuinely is the ghost of his father. The other characters on stage remain in a state of uncertainty. Horatio says that Hamlet waxes desperate with imagination, suggesting that he is reverting to his Epicurean line of regarding the ghost as a mental illusion. The ghost only speaks when alone with Hamlet. Since this is the case, we cannot rule out the possibility that it is an illusion shared by Hamlet's friends, Marcellus and Barnardo, and then Horatio. Significantly, it is not seen by the other sentinel, Francisco, who is not a friend of Hamlet's. Like the Ill, Ill omens that are mentioned in Julius Caesar and cited by Horatio, the ghost might just be the embodiment of the knowledge of the Hamlet faction that something is rotten in the state of Denmark. But when it speaks to Hamlet, it becomes another kind of ghost. It is at this point that it says where it has come from. I am thy father's spirit, doomed for a certain term to walk the night, and for the day confined to fast in fires, till the foul crimes done in my days of nature are burnt and purged away. The word purged leaves little doubt that he is in purgatory. In place of the classical idea that a figure such as Patroclus in the Iliad returns as a ghost because he has not had proper burial rites that will allow him access to the underworld, we get the Roman Catholic idea 
that many of us will have to spend time in purgatory, doing penance for our sins upon the earth. A principal source of income for the Roman church was the sale of indulgences, which, along with prayers for the souls of the departed, were supposed to reduce the duration of the time served in purgatory before translation to heaven. Corruption of this kind, together with the absence of any biblical warrant for the idea of purgatory, was one of the driving forces of the Protestant Reformation, which accordingly abolished purgatory. Lavater's treatise of ghosts and spirits, which I mentioned earlier, was a Protestant polemic arguing against the idea that supposed ghosts were souls returned from purgatory because there was no such thing as purgatory and the Bible had made clear that the dead only rise from their graves on the day of judgment at the end of time. So the classical ghost has turned into a Catholic ghost. Given that Hamlet is a student at Wittenberg University, birthplace of the Lutheran Reformation, this leaves him with a dilemma. If he has been trained to believe that there is no such thing as purgatory, should he believe the ghost? Initially, he finds the case so persuasive that he does. He swears by St. Patrick. St. Patrick was the keeper of purgatory. He swears by St. Patrick that it is an honest ghost. And he chides his fellow student Horatio for his Epicurean scepticism about the supernatural. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Subsequently, however, his own philosophical spirit of doubt and self-interrogation leads him to reconsider. Perhaps it is not an honest ghost after all. The spirit that I have seen may be the devil, and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape, yea, and perhaps out of my weakness and melancholy, as he is very potent with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. As with Plutarch's remark about Brutus, this introduces the idea that people of a thoughtful and melancholy disposition are unusually susceptible to fanciful imaginings of spirits from another world. Prompted by his fear that the ghost might actually be a devil, Hamlet comes up with the idea of staging the play within the play in order to test the veracity of the murder story by watching Claudius's reaction. But famously, when the ghost returns to complain about the delay caused by the process of putting on the play, it is seen by Hamlet alone and not by Gertrude. I've got a 19th century painting there of the uh, American actor uh, Edwin Booth uh, and uh, it's a rather lovely painting because the ghost is just a sort of shadow. You half see it as if Hamlet is seeing it, Gertrude not. Gertrude regards the apparent manifestation of the ghost as a sign of Hamlet's madness. Her language is identical to that of Lady Macbeth chiding her husband in the banquet scene. This is the very coinage of your brain. The bodiless creation ecstasy is very cunning in. So we seem to have an act one ghost first seeming to be a Senecan figure demanding revenge and a classical augury of troubled times, and then announcing itself as a departed soul coming from Catholic purgatory, but an Act Three ghost who appears to be something 
internal, psychological, a voicing of Hamlet's disgust at his mother's incest and a projection of his own conscience. Remember, in To Be or Not To Be, he has said that the cause of his delay is conscience. Conscience doth make cowards of us all. The Act Three ghost is more like those of Banquo and the victims of Richard III. It is an emanation from within the mind and not an emissary from another world. So is Shakespeare seriously asking his audience to believe that the Act Three ghost is something different from the Act One ghost? Well, I would say not necessarily believe, but at least to countenance the possibility, because after all, Hamlet is so much a play about questions rather than answers. And I would say, yes, he might well be doing that, not only because the Act One ghost is seen by several characters, the Act Three ghost by Hamlet alone, but also because they wear different costumes. If we can trust the evidence of the earliest printed text of the play, the so-called First Quarto, which seems to be based on a shorthand or other remembered uh, reconstruction of an early performance, Whereas the Act One ghost wears full body armour, the Act Three ghost enters in his nightgown. Armour is the costume of a martial classical ghost, like Don Andrea in the Spanish tragedy. A few years later, uh, Shakespeare would begin his highly classical play Troilus and Cressida with a prologue in full armour. But what does the nightgown suggest? Surely, it is a projection of Hamlet's belief that the man in Gertrude's bed should be his father, not his uncle. The costume is a projection of his horror at the idea of Claudius coming to Gertrude in his nightgown and having sex with her. No other ghost in early modern drama, so far as I'm aware, has a costume change of this sort. <laughs> So in this development from the classical ghost through the Catholic ghost to the internalised ghost as the voice of conscience, and remember how important the idea of conscience is within Protestant thought, in this Shakespeare may perhaps be dramatising the road to modernity. Let me explain that idea a little more fully. There are a number of surviving references to an older Hamlet tragedy, some people say by Thomas Kidd, that clearly had a classically Senecan ghost calling for revenge. Thomas Nash wrote of that English Seneca read by candlelight, yielding many good sentences. And if you would treat him fair in a frosty morning, he will afford you whole hamlets, I should say handfuls, of tragical speeches. The prologue to a play called A Warning for Fair Women recalls tragedies in which a filthy whining ghost comes screaming like a pig half-sticked and cries, Vindicta! Revenge! Revenge! And in Thomas Lodge's 1596 work, Wit's Misery and the World's Madness, there is a reference to the ghost which cried so miserably at the theatre, Oh, Hamlet! Revenge! So the starting point is the Senecan ghost calling for revenge. And that's duly echoed in Hamlet Senior's Revenge, His Foul and Most Unnatural Murder. Although saying his, not my, unnatural murder perhaps sows a seed of doubt. Then overlaid upon this model is the other classical idea 
articulated so ably by Horatio, of the ghost as the symbolic precursor of fierce events and prologue to the omen coming on. Then there is a deliberate disjunction between the desires of the classical and the Catholic ghost. After all, solicitation to murder in the manner of a Senecan revenge ghost is hardly a good way of reducing your time in purgatory. As the ghost departs, his refrain becomes not revenge, but remember. A mental action replaces a physical one, and it signals a progression towards the process of self-examination and inner exploration that characterises Hamlet, the student and speaker of soliloquies. There is thus a progression from the Senecan ghost calling for revenge and the equally classical ghost as harbinger to a Catholic ghost coming from purgatory, to, in the third act, a Protestant ghost imagining that is purely a mental state. And surely this mirrors for Shakespeare the historical progression from ancient Rome to modern Catholic Rome to Protestant Northern Europe. Denmark became an officially Lutheran state by royal decree as early as 1536. And Shakespeare knew perfectly well he was writing for a Protestant court and city in London. The evolution of the ghost within Hamlet is of a piece with that larger project I outlined in my first lecture, whereby the drama of Shakespeare and his fellow Elizabethans was a major part of a national endeavour to create an English Protestant culture that opposed itself to modern Rome, even as it drew inspiration from ancient Rome. What is a ghost? An emanation from the past, for which another word is a memory. Remember me, says Hamlet's ghost. What is a historical play? An emanation from the past, in which the actors are shadows, which is to say ghosts, of their historical or fictional originals. When do ghosts most frequently appear? In dreams or dreamlike nocturnal states. What is a dream? An imaginary world pieced together from memory. What is a play? An imaginary world pieced together from memory. A shared dream. We are such stuff, says Prospero, as dreams are made on. The recurring idea present in all the examples I've been discussing is that ghosts and spirits may be phantasms or mental states, not supernatural phenomena. The device for dramatising this idea is that of having some characters see the ghosts and others not see them. Now this technique is also used for Shakespeare's two magical spirits, Puck in A Midsummer Night's Dream and Ariel in The Tempest. Um, I've just put two images up there. One of them is uh, John Everett Millet, the great pre-Raphaelite artist's um, image of Ferdinand hearing the music of Ariel but not actually seeing him. And again, rather like with the ghost uh, um, in the, the, pre the previous image, you can sort of half see the shadowy figure of Ariel, but Ferdinand can't see him. No mortal character ever sees Puck. No one but Prospero ever sees Ariel, though he is sometimes made visible in the metamorphosed form of a flame, a harpy or a spirit in a wedding mask. His music is heard by Caliban and Ferdinand, but he is not seen, just as neither the lovers nor Bottom in A Midsummer Night's Dream see Puck executing his tricks. As the agents of, res respectively, Oberon and Prospero, 
Puck and Ariel are the engines of the plots of Shakespeare's two most magical plays. There is a sense in which Oberon and Prospero are playwrights or directors with Puck and Ariel as their stage managers. And it is this analogy between dreams, magic, invisible spirits and theatre that Shakespeare persistently plays upon. Theseus's description in A Midsummer Night's Dream of the power of the poet is also a description of the work of Puck, who doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven. Shakespeare's ghosts and airy spirits are the local habitations of the trick of what Theseus, speaking just after the Midsummer Night's Dream has come to an end at dawn, calls strong imagination. So too, after Prospero stages his play within the play, he makes explicit the parallel between supernatural imaginings and stage plays. These are actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. The same melting metaphor that was used for the weird sisters in Macbeth and the ghost in Hamlet. Once one sees this analogy, one perceives another layer to the question of whether or not the ghosts in Julius Caesar, Richard III, Cymbeline, Macbeth and Hamlet, the angels in Henry VIII, the spirits in Midsummer Night's Dream and the airy sprite in The Tempest, of the question of whether they are real. No, of course they are not real. They are actors, for which another word in Shakespearean usage was shadows, puck, if we shadows have offended. The ghosts and spirits are actors, no more but no less than all the other characters in the plays are actors. They are merely actors. In Shakespearean usage, merely doesn't only mean only, it also means absolutely, entirely, and without qualification. To acknowledge this is to confront the full force of Jakes's reminder in As You Like It that all the world's a stage and all the men and women are merely players. Players are shadows. Shadows is another word for ghosts. We are all players, all shadows. One day we will all be ghosts. <laughs> <laughs>